Good morning, everyone. My name is Peter, and I'm not going to speak yet. I just want to introduce a new thing that we're going to be doing. Uh, we're going to have some storytellers up here, I think, almost every week. And uh, there's been a great response to people wanting to tell their stories. Turns out, I'm not the only one who wants to speak in front of people. Um, and we're booked out all the way through the summer. So it's going to be really fun. And uh, I still need uh, about 20 more people, so keep emailing me, and we'll get you plugged in. Uh, but uh, starting things off for us is our very own Kevin Scheid, uh, a failed politician by, uh, you know. <laughs> so Kevin, come on up and tell us uh, a story. This is Kevin Scheid, everyone. Please vote for him. <clears throat> Gee, thanks for that introduction, Peter. So... Uh, a couple of days ago, Peter overheard that I flew helicopters in the Coast Guard and, and, you know, right to, hey, can you speak, tell us a story in church? Because presumably flying helicopters and going to the church are very, very similar. You know, in both, both cases you pray, in both cases you believe in miracles, <clears throat> and in both cases when that fan stops turning, you, you tend to sweat. Regardless, I'm not going to talk about helicopters because uh, generally people can't relate, and some of the stories I have actually aren't true, and, and I've forgotten which ones. So. But a few years back, when, uh, before I was a Christian, Bob, Ed, and I, we were stationed in Corpus Christi, Texas, and I was flying for the Coast Guard, and uh, life was good. I mean, it was a perfect job. I just loved it. Uh, and I was married to Bobette, and, you know, things just don't get any better than that. So um, I had a new boss coming into town. And his reputation was he was a very tough guy, and he was a very Christian guy. I think they used Bible thumper. And uh, they said, watch out for him because he's going to get you cornered. And, you know, but I wasn't really concerned because I grew up very religious, and it was very religious, but there's no faith involved. And uh, I eventually kind of figured that out and figured I'd been fooled because it was all ritual rules and man-made-up stuff. And uh, so I rejected religion, and I had uh, good arguments for why you didn't want to get back into that, and I was not going to get fooled again. So the new boss came, and he was a good guy, great boss, uh, turned into be a really good friend, and never talked about his faith at work. But one night he showed up, at our house with a Bible in his hand. He says, I want to talk to you about this book. He says, sure, come on in. And, and after just a few minutes, it was obvious he was not going to get anywhere with me. Uh, and I was pretty annoying, I think, and he was frustrated. So he said, you know, Kevin, he says, I really like you. You're a good guy. But I'm concerned about your eternal salvation. And I'm going to pray to God. And, and God always listens to my prayers. So I'm going to pray that something happens in your life that is so terrible that's <clears throat> just going to turn your head around and get your attention. And I said, you know, I don't believe in that. Go for it. You know, whatever you want, you know. So sure enough, uh, a couple months later, <clears throat> I get orders to Kodiak Allpat. Now, Kodiak Allpat is like getting orders to Siberia. It's, uh, you, you fly a single-engine helicopter over the Bering Sea on a tiny little ship in... Uh, 
and the ships are corroded, they're covered with salt water, they barely work if, and they're unsafe. People were turning in their wings rather, or re resigning from the Coast Guard rather to go, than go from this, uh, take these orders. Uh, and besides that, I get seasick. I mean, this was just the worst possible thing that could happen. And, and I come to my boss and say, uh, I tell him what's happening, and he kind of looks at me and just laughs. He says, I told you God listens to me. <laughs> so, like, whatever, you know. <clears throat> so we show up in Kodiak, and the sponsor uh, is a person I knew from before, and, and he's a Christian, and, and his wife, and, uh, and our neighbor is a Christian, and a couple of buddies from the academy who were <clears throat> kind of extraordinary sinners back then, they, they were Christians, and they were both there. And uh, my assistant was a Christian and a couple of the chiefs, and I was kind of trying to get away from these people. And, and uh, so I went out for basketball. You know, you never, I never met a Christian on a basketball team, but sure enough, you know, they're all Christians. I go to sea, meet a bunch of people, and they're Christians. And it's like, in the first 12 years of being in the Coast Guard, I'd never met a Christian. Now, I couldn't meet anybody but Christians. It was just really weird. And then I ran into this guy, Ted, who was like a super cool guy, you know, affluent family from Boston, Ivy League kind of guy, really cool, kind of easygoing, um, and, but he wasn't a Christian, which was, seemed to be kind of cool. And then, uh, but there's something really weird about him, you know, and, and one day I was talking to him and I just get this feeling of a, like a spiritual evil and it made no sense to me whatever because I didn't believe in, in the spiritual world and I didn't believe in evil. But there's just no question in my mind what I had just felt. And so I was kind of, well, I'll, I'll figure it out, you know, I had to think about it. And uh, turned out, as, uh, months later we find out, Ted actually was a pretty evil guy. <clears throat> he had his own... Uh, devil worship cult, uh, cult. He was ahead of it. He pushed drugs and he was a pimp. So he's probably one of the most evil person, people that I've ever met. Uh, but I still couldn't explain that feeling. So I go to sea and uh, one of the worst uh, cruises I've ever been on, it's really rough. I'm just violently seasick. And so one of these ambiguous Christians comes up and says, why don't you pray? you know, to, to get out of this. And I said, what? You know, I don't believe in any of that. He says, well, what does it hurt? So I really did not believe in it. I prayed anyway, and my seasickness just stopped. It just ended right there. And uh, at that point, you know, I, I just gave my life to Christ. So it, it was undeniable. So let me... Uh, let me read the passage today, and, and then Peter is going to try to take that story and link it with the passage somehow. <laughs> so this is a reading from the book of Colossians. And please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading from selected verses from Colossians chapter 1 in the New American Standard Bible. <clears throat> he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. <clears throat> 
He is before all things, and in him all things held together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. <clears throat> for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. The word of the Lord. I'm not sure we're allowed to celebrate people in church, but can we give him a round of applause for that? It takes uh, some guts to get up here and tell a story, and uh, we really appreciate you doing that, Kevin. Uh, we are in the book of Colossians, and the book of Colossians is about the person of Jesus Christ. And uh, it's also the book with what we would say is the highest Christology, meaning that this book of all books in the Bible has the highest view, most lofty view of who Christ was and is. And so it makes it a special book in that way. We have two points today, Christ and in Christ. And I want to start from the end here and have us look at verse 27 and 29. Let me read it for us one more time. God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, and this is the operative phrase I want us to zero in on, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then verse 29, similarly, Paul says, for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works, where? Within me. And so central to this passage is this idea that it's all about Christ inside of you, inside of me. That all the things that Christ did, all that he is, actually matters nothing to you if he doesn't get inside of you somehow. And so Paul applies that to himself, all this power, right? His power, which moderately works out there? No, as far as Paul's concerned, What's most important for him is that the power is working within him. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's what all that boils down to. So let me uh, double click on this and share with you what I believe is the Christian worldview. And I am in no way assuming you hold this view, but this I think is the view of the Bible. Okay, first of all, the Bible believes that everything is created, that we have a creator. And if there's a creator, we are not our own. You know, somebody else owns us. Somebody else made us for their own purposes. We don't get to sort of just decide why we are created because we didn't do the creating. That's like a book telling the author what to write. That just 
can't happen by definition of what an author is. The author is the one who writes the book. The potter is the one who makes the pot. The creator is the one who gets to assign a purpose for the created. And the Bible teaches related to that, that God created us as empty vessels, that we are meant to be filled. And apart from the filling, we are empty. We are vacuous. We are deeply in need. And it also teaches that we are going to be filled with one thing or another by the simple virtue of the fact that we are empty vessels by design. And so there's a kind of abhorrence to the vacuous nature that's in us, and everything is trying to fill us in some way, shape, or form. The most extreme version of this is taught by Jesus in Mark chapter 3, for example. He teaches that uh, sometimes people get filled with demons. Again, this is the Christian worldview, that there are such things as spirits, and spirits long to fill, right? And that's the way God created spirits, to be influencers, to be helpers, to be connected to creatures. And so... Uh, demons sometimes fill a person. And then Jesus teaches, you can't just cast out the demon and think the person is of sound mind and can go along as normal. No, you have to actually fill that person with some stronger force. Otherwise, that demon who's been cast out is going to go out, wander, and then want to fill again because that's the nature of spirits to want to fill And they're going to go get other demons. They're going to fill the person. And the person's going to be even in a worse state than before. Because we have to be filled with something. And that's the most extreme example of it. And Jesus says not everything is worthy to do the filling. That some spirits are evil. They take possession. And they seek to enslave the one that they possess. Now, fine. That's the Christian worldview. That's what I actually, I actually believe that, and many of you believe that, but some of you don't, and that's great. So let's turn to your worldview, those of you that don't believe that. Uh, what's your worldview? I asked myself this question, because uh, I, I wasn't a Christian my whole life. I became a Christian when I was in college. So uh, I thought back to that time, and I realized I always believed in the vacuous nature of the self. That's what drew me to Christianity in the first place. It wasn't that I came to uh, the Christian faith as a filled person. I came there as an empty person. I came there with longings and wants that were unmet. I felt the incomplete nature of myself, and I wanted to be made complete. So I acknowledge that, that without a Christian worldview, I still have to acknowledge that there's something empty about the human being. And I notice that something's always filling me. Uh, Sometimes it's a mood. A mood takes possession of me. It fills me. It comes to define how I show up in the room, what kind of person I am, the words that I say, the thoughts that I have. Sometimes I'm filled with certain emotions. Sometimes it's joy. Sometimes it's hopelessness. Sometimes it's numbness. But I have emotions, and they fill me. They come to define me. Or I have attitudes, or I feel certain pressures. I hear certain voices from the past. I have certain ambitions that take a hold of me. 
Peter, what's gotten a hold of you? Oh, I'm not myself today. Well, what do you mean? Well, I don't know, but I feel like I'm different than I was yesterday or yesteryear. I'm just a, I don't know what gear I'm in or what philosophy is taking a hold of me, but I acknowledge that as a creature, I tend to get filled. An example of this, you know, I've been running a little bit more than usual lately, and I was on a longer 15-mile run. I started out late because I overestimated how long I was going to take, and then uh, it was a really windy day. It was about 11 miles per hour on, the, uh, on my app. I don't know what it actually was, but every time I got to certain parts along the lake, I had to hold my um, hat down with my hands, and I wanted to give up, and there's been many runs when I've called Susie just out of the blue and said, honey, you got to pick me up. I can't do this anymore. But here's what happened. I had been researching the Pacific Crest Trail. That's a hike that stretches from Mexico to Canada, right? And uh, it's on my bucket list. And so I've been looking into it. I want to do it. And somehow, as things got harder and it got darker and I started stumbling on roots and, you know, just being challenged in the run, the spirit of the Pacific Crest Trail took over. And I started actually running faster. And I ended the 15-mile run with negative splits. And if, you, if you're a runner, you know that's sort of like the gold standard, right? It means I ran faster every mile of the second half than I did the first half. And so I was really proud of that. And I thought back to what allowed me to do that is the spirit of the Pacific Crest Trail took a hold of me. And then here's another thing I realized. After I did that, I was really proud of myself. Like, there was some serious patting on the back happening. I tried to dial it down a little bit on Facebook, but it probably came through in some sneaky way. You know, because that's what Facebook is for. Right? What else is it for? That's the whole identity question. You know, I realized I draw strength from being identified as a runner. And part of what made me push myself is I didn't want to not be a runner. I wanted to be worthy of the label runner. Peter's a runner. No, in fact, Peter's a marathon runner. I like that. And I think we all, even without our Christian worldview, have some desire for an identity. What is identity? What's the search for self that we embark on? You know, we don't think about the term identity or think philosophically about what an identity is every moment. But when it's challenged, we feel it. You know, when I was threatened with the label, not a runner anymore, I definitely perked up a little. Because that identity means something to me. It gives me something. It fills me with a sense of completion and legitimacy. It comes to define me. And even... Not as a Christian, I think I have to admit that I long for an identity that's deemed worthy, that's respected, that the world gives credit to. And here's another thing that I have found, that no matter what identity I grasp at, I haven't found anything yet that's worthy of filling me. And I say that because everything eventually breaks down and stops being helpful to me. So for example, in running, one of the hardest things you learn when you're training is you can't overtrain. And so good coaches are really, what they're doing is they're holding their athletes back so that they can really blow it open on race day. But prior to that, you have to be protected from injury. 
From what? The spirit of being a runner, the identity of being labeled a runner or a successful runner or a winning runner is so strong that it overtakes you. It possesses you and takes you to a place that's not loving to you anymore. It's not serving you well. But is there anything in life that actually is worthy of filling me, taking possession of me? Whatever identity I can grasp at, it fails. You know, it doesn't work. So let's say you draw your identity from work or your success at work. Does it love your soul? Does it care for you? Will it be boundaried for you? Or will it consume you? Will it enslave you? And if you don't keep that ambition in check, you're going to burn out. You're going to fail in life, actually. You're not going to, it's not going to do right by you. And being a dad, that can't be it, because then I'm going to need my kids to succeed, because it's about me. So being a dad can't be it. What about being a good pastor? I'm telling you, you want a pastor who has reluctance about being a pastor, because it keeps them pure, keeps them on their game, and it's not about them, Right? So whatever I can think about, whatever I've experienced, none of it has ever been worthy of filling me. None of it understands who I am and how I need to be led through life. It could be a relationship. It could be a job. It could be a hobby. But some external thing that I open myself up to and then it begins to consume me in a way that's detrimental. Even if you don't believe in spirits or that you are a created being, I think you have to conclude, if you're honest with yourself, that you are vulnerable to influence and powers and forces and energies that are out there. And you have to conclude, I think, that not all forces that influence you are good for you or helpful or loving. They're not worthy of you. And I think if you're really honest with yourself, you have to admit that you are a vacuous being longing to be filled. And there have been darker, quieter moments on a regular basis in your life when you have felt your own sense of emptiness. As the great postmodern book says, the unbearable lightness of being. It is hard to just be. Because we know we're not sufficient. We know we're not legitimate. We need something that helps us to feel weight, significance. <clears throat> so that brings us to Christ. Now, I'm sorry for all the words up there, the wall of words. Uh, and I won't read it again, uh, but for the audio, it's verse 15 to 20. And I want to ask you to read it. Take a couple of minutes and read it here. Now, I was a literature major, and I've read lots of descriptors of characters, uh, mythical and real, and I've never ever come across a description of a being that's loftier than verses 15 to 20. Can you think of someone? whose description is superior to this? It's a pretty high standard. That's a good resume. That'll get you some jobs out there. And I think, you know, 
um, I think this is actually the best uh, gospel that's in the whole Bible. If, if I had to pick a few verses to go to a, a, you know, planet Mars and start converting Martians, this is what I would take. I don't think there's a better description of the gospel than this. Now, the other thing that Paul is saying uh, in these verses is that there is no one else worthy of filling you than this person, the person that fits this description. That he is the one, that Jesus is the one who created us. And there is no one who knows us better than Christ. And he alone is worthy of taking possession of us. And he alone, and I think this is what Paul is saying, he alone has the ability to give us the value that we long for, the sense of worth, weightiness, and legitimacy. This is what it takes to do that job. If this is the job description of the one who fills us, then you realize nobody else can actually meet these requirements. It has to be Christ. I have been taught for many, many years that my value as a person comes from Christ. And I know that Christ is my identity. And I'm going to tell you, admit to you, that I haven't really understood this until recently. That when somebody of this uh, supreme value dies for me, then I am valuable to you by virtue of the fact that you value Christ and he died for me. It has nothing to do with me. But this supreme being, his value, his worth and legitimacy is conferred onto me because he died for me. You know, and you realize you live with this reality every day. All the inanimate objects, the things that you have, why are they valuable? Because of the meaning that's been conferred onto them by other more valuable things like people you love or memories or treasured experiences. In fact, we know this psychologically that the owners of objects tend to way overvalue their products, their objects, because of the memories and the feelings that they have. It's not because it's intrinsically valuable at all. And actually, the uh, economists and social econo behavioral economists will tell you it's about two times the value. We always think things are worth about twice the value. And they did this test with like mugs. Like people were asked to sell their favorite mugs. And they literally valued it twice what people are willing to pay. And I think that's even being generous. Who's going to pay $10 for your stinking mug with that stain inside? That's just nasty. You couldn't give it to me for free. But yet to you, it's of supreme value. But it's not because of the mug. It's because you value it and you're valuable. And that's what Paul is saying here. Is that all that identity you're longing for, all that worth, it's found in the person of Christ. He alone is valuable. 
You are a created being. The value you're looking for is one that only your creator can bestow on you by his death for you. And if you are a Christian, one of the key tenets of your faith is you believe that your value and beyond you, human value comes not from you, but from Christ. You value animals and creation as a policy in your life because Christ is creator and he made you steward or manager over creation. That's why Christians should lead in creation care movements because the very best citizens, citizens of earth are citizens of heaven because earth gets its value from heaven, from above. Now, if you're not a Christian, the question still remains, from where and how do you derive your self's worth and value? How do you know that you have rights? How do you know that you should be treated with dignity, with respect? How do you know that you matter, that you're not just disposable? that people aren't allowed to treat you in certain ways and you should be treated in other ways. How do you know that? Who told you that? And you have to wrestle through that question. If you're a Christian, you believe it's not about you at all. That we have immeasurable worth and value because of our creator. And we believe furthermore that Christ alone knows us through and through, has all power. He is love, and he has given his life for us. And he alone is worthy of taking possession of us. And that's what Christians mean when they say, Christ is my identity, he is my value, he is my joy. This is what we're saying, that we are vacuous, and when other things fill us, they remind us of the joy. They're reminiscent of the joy that Christ alone can give us, but they're not the source of joy. They're not the ultimate end-all, be-all. So we turn to Christ. That's how that breaks down, that Jesus is our lover. He's our savior. He's our redeemer. He's our identity. He is our Lord, and we are his. This is what we believe about the Christ. Now, all that worth nothing to you if he doesn't get in you. So it's Christ in you. He alone is the hope of glory. Now, think about this, the hope of glory. The word glory, as you know, if you've been around here, I talk about that a lot because I love what it means. It means weightiness. The word literally just means to be heavy, right? And we have some contemporary translation of this. We use the word matter, like, do I matter? Does this matter? And what we mean by that is literal, matter. It has substance to it, right? It's, you, you can't just see through it. And that's this word. He is our only hope of mattering, of being valuable, of not being unbearably light. He gives us worth and identity. And... Uh, my admission to you would be that at some point, I came to understand that I, as a person, I don't just need help, that I need saving. 
You know, I know it's a really oft-used and misused word, and I think rightly so. Christians have been accused of using the word saving as a way to abdicate responsibility for our own selves. You know, and I freely admit there's been many times in life when I've wanted Jesus to come back to rescue me from the SATs or something. You know, or I've wanted to be possessed by a demon rather than actually work through my baggage. Because how cool would it be if just like that, in Jesus' name, go out, be cast out, or whatever exorcists say, and then my problems are gone. That'd be amazing. You know, and so I would say things like, God save me. What I really meant was, God, I don't want to go through this. This It's like a lot of work. It's going to take years, isn't it? Right? And so we totally deserve that accusation that we've misused the word saving. But I still maintain that I need saving, not just helping. Because I have been honest enough to understand that there's something powerful and constant about my vacuous nature. And it's constantly trying to fill, uh, you know, I'm trying to fill myself with illegitimate things and these forces. And I realize I don't make good decisions or these things break down at some point in the near future. And I realize that's not going to do it either. I could have sworn this thing I buy. You know, like I got my eye on a new running watch. Like I really think that one's going to be the final one. I really do. I think that's going to save me, you know? Like, because it's beautiful, and it's got the latest and the greatest, and how can that not possibly save me? But I should know. I'm wearing a watch called the Phoenix 3. You know where the Phoenix 3 comes from? It comes from Phoenix 2, which comes from Phoenix 1. And you know what the next one is? Phoenix 5. How high do these model numbers go? It never stops, because my hunger never stops. Because they're promising salvation, but all they do is help. And I've bought enough things. I've been in enough relationships. I've looked to enough things to know I need saving, not helping. And I came to understand at some point that the world just doesn't need help, but it needs saving. You know, people need saving. Things need saving. Disciplines and systems and data points and more information. It's not going to eventually save. It's going to help. But it can't take me all the way permanently there. And even without a Christian worldview, I think if I'm honest, I, I know that the world needs saving. And uh, if I put on my sort of non-Christian brain and I think about what I would do if I was going to save the world, here's what I would do. I would tie every single person up, like to a pole. I would totally have to externally control their attitudes, their behaviors, their words, their thoughts. Somehow, that's what I have to do. I can't have free people and save them at the same time. Because I think about everything. It comes down to people, and they keep messing things up. Like, human beings are terrible at being good. You know, and how far can you legislate into a person's life? How micro can you get? And you realize laws don't, can't force us to do good. It could only keep us from doing evil. And barely at that. 
right? There are limitations to legislation. Like, let's say that we could save people by tying people. But then here's the question, who's going to do the tying? Like, who's worthy of that power? You know, the Stanford Prison Experiment proved this, that you take a bunch of really smart intellectual, like students, who are aspirational and believing that the world is full of hope, who don't, they just need help, they don't need saving. You put them in a, like a fake, documented prison experiment, and within 24 hours, the, the students who played guards became abusive. You know this, this is like, Google this, this is like really telling about how quickly we de degenerate. Put innocent children onto an island, and within a week, we're marching around the weak one, screaming, kill the pig, kill the pig. That's the Lord of the Flies, right? What about, what about the heart of darkness? The horror, the horror, the author cried out. How far can we go in trying to save people? You know, I can't just save people by changing what they think. I have to change how they think, how they view something, and then how they feel about it. And I have to explain to them why they should feel a certain way and not a certain way, other way. How long is that going to take? How many therapy sessions? Like if I engage in hand-to-hand -hand combat with every person I was trying to save, how many lifetimes do I have to live to save six billion people? If it was literally my job and I was paid to try to save people, wait a minute, that is my job. The best pastoral advice I got this week is don't try to change people. And then I thought, what am I doing it then? <laughs> what about you? What would you do? Could you change people without diminishing other good things like freedom? I don't know. There's a lot of naivete in our advanced modern society. Because control doesn't work. Naivete doesn't work. Ignorance doesn't work. I don't want to be dumb and happy. I want to know stuff. I want to understand. I want to get it. But I don't want to be corrupt by it. I don't want to be depressed by it. And I've concluded without a Christian worldview that it's not possible. So I did this little exercise myself. Let me see if you would do it. What's your self's peak as a being? Okay, let me ask it another way. When you're at your very best and you're as wise as you want to be, you're everything that you should be and want to be as a human being, how old are you by the time you get there? So the context for my exercise for me was I'm looking at 50, right, in the next few years. I know, Asians look young. I get it. It's awesome. <laughs> True story. I got carded two weeks ago. I think it's because they didn't want to insult me. They were carding somebody else who was actually younger than me. But, okay, so I was looking at, I'm looking at 50, and I'm thinking, when I'm 50, will I have arrived as a human being? Will I be in my final form when I say, God, I'm good? Good. Let's just coast from here on out. Maintenance mode engaged. 
Like, will that happen? Those of you who are 50 years or older, does that happen at age 50? Okay, those of you that are 60, does that happen at 60? No. Okay, 70, my final offer. Does that happen at 70? No. Okay, 80, does that happen at 80? Okay, let me push it further. 90, I know there are a couple of you in here who can answer this question. John, does it happen at 90? No, still working. <laughs> and you get, maybe you get to a better place at 90 in other areas, but in other areas you've diminished. True or false? True. True. When do you get there? I think you never do. I think you never do until Christ is in you. Because he, according to the author Paul, is our only hope of glory. It's Christ in you, hope of glory. The vessel is not the point. The vessel contains the thing that's valuable, and the vessel derives its value from what is within. And I don't know what I would think if I was a non-Christian in this room today, but I'd have some, I, I would have some wrestling to do. Can I be valuable? Can I achieve glory state without the person of Christ in me? Is it possible to be beautiful enough, to be wise enough, to be deep enough, to be true enough, to be loving enough without Christ? Can I, me, as a vessel, achieve a, such a state? And I really think the answer is no. For me, what is it for you? Can you do it? All the work, all that Christ is, means nothing to you until he gets inside of you. You can be a Christian. You can say you're a Christian, but it's, if he's not in you, you are not being saved because salvation happens from within. We know this just by looking at the world. It can't be contained. It has to be transformed from within. Somehow, the word of God has to be planted in you, and then it has to grow inside of you, and then it has to somehow start bearing fruit and expanding. It has to take possession of you. You have to become a new creation in Christ. You have to be born again. This isn't religious speak. This is me just being practical. I don't know if I always know what that means, like Christ in me, but I do know that I need something else to grow inside of me and fill me and take over. I know that. I know that. And if the Christian worldview fits, it's because it addresses that which I know, that which is confirmed in nature and in life. Christ in you, hope of glory. <clears throat> we proclaim him, Paul says in 28, 29, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. In Christ, in Christ, complete in Christ. There is no completion outside of Christ. It's 
in Christ and Christ in you. For this purpose also I labor. That's what all the laboring is about. The labor of life is about Christ in us, striving according to his power, which mightily works where? Within me. This is the good news, that you can't earn Christ in you. You're just a vessel. Somebody else has to do the filling. Somebody else has to open you up and give to you the thing that you have been longing for your whole life. All the labor of God and man, it's really us striving for Christ or Christ-likeness or a Christ in you because Christ, the actual Christ, is our only hope of glory. I don't know if you believe that yet, but I've come to believe that. And even if I am not living in that, I know that's what I'm aiming for. So I want to end the sermon with this prayer, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I'm going to lead us in some uh, prayer topics. I want to ask, invite you now to close your eyes. I want to ask you to bow your heads. And I have a list of seven prayers that I like to pray. Number one, I want to ask you in your own words, in your heart, to ask for Christ to be in you, for God's power to work mightily within you, because your salvation and the world's salvation starts with you as far as you're concerned. Think about all the forces that take possession of you throughout the day. And recognize that none of those things are worthy. All of them fall short of the glory of God. Second prayer, I want to invite you to pray for Christ to be in the world. Just pray that his dominion would expand somehow. That love would increase that truth would increase, that goodness and kindness and gentleness would increase. Third, I want to invite you to pray for our government because that's what the Bible teaches, that we have to pray. We're commanded to pray for our government. And I want to get specific here. I know some of you voted for Trump, and you voted for him with your own agendas, I want to invite you to release those agendas and say, God, use President Trump for your agendas. I want you to pray that. Release your agendas. Some of you didn't vote for Trump, and you're disappointed. I want you to let that go. And I want you to pray for our president. In a few days, he's going to be our president. And pray for him, that God would use him, that Christ would fill him, that good would come through his office. Pray that he would be anointed, that God would use 
this system called government to bless people, to help people, to reveal some facet of God's love to them through the policies, through laws, through how the system is executing justice. Pray for that. Pray for our church that we, would, we wouldn't be left to our own devices, that Christ would be in our church. Pray for our families, your loved ones, your mom, your dad, your children, your grandchildren, your spouse. Release them. They're not yours to save. They're in God's hands now, they, like they have always been. It's Christ in them, their hope of glory. Pray for your other relationships. Ask for help. Relationships that are tense, relationships that are stuck, relationships that are diminishing in health. Ask Christ to come in. Our final prayer is the prayer for Christ to be lifted up. God, be lifted up in our lives. You are of supreme value, and you bestow that onto us by grace. And I pray that many, many will come to experience you that way as their Lord and Savior, as the God of this world. We lift you up in our hearts and in our lives as we ask you in, in Jesus' name, amen.